Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Caleb, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And if we haven't had the chance to meet before, I'd love to do that uh, this morning after our service. Uh, but if you wouldn't mind bowing again in, in prayer uh, with me, uh, for us to, to pray to God and pray with me for him to be speaking through me this morning for all of us to hear what he would have to say to us. So please pray with me. Uh, dear God, just thank you uh, for the privilege it is to gather together with other believers and to worship you and to praise your name and to declare that our hope is in your hands. And God, I pray that you speak through me this morning Uh, May I proclaim your word faithfully um, and effectively, and may you open my eyes and all of our eyes and ears uh, to hear and see what you would have to say to us today, and may we be changed as a result. Uh, Lord, only you can do this, and we trust in you to do that. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So when you think about following Jesus, uh, what images or metaphors come to mind? To describe the Christian life, uh, what, yeah, what metaphors do you often use to do that? If you're like me, I'm sure you have many different metaphors and images you use. I often like to think of the Christian life as a journey, as a growing, being like a growing plant, belonging to a family, having a personal relationship with God, but a battle. That's, that's the image that we have seen in our scripture passage that was read over us this morning. And for me, that's an image I don't normally think about when I think about what it means to follow Jesus. And maybe that's because I've seen many Christians be so eager to latch on to this battle imagery, whether it be through um, the history, through uh, holy wars that have been fought or crusades that have been fought in history, or even today in in culture wars that that we find ourselves as Christians so easily caught up in. And so so it might be natural and easy for some of us to react against this image of the Christian life being a battle. But there is something crucial that we miss out on when we don't 
take hold of this image. That the Apostle Paul gives us this morning in talking about the armor of God and seeing that the Christian life is a battle. That there's an ongoing struggle that we are in as believers. And we must understand what sort of struggle we are engaged in and how we must fight in it. So this is what I'm talking about, want to talk about today, how the Christian life is a battle. And as Paul closes this letter to the Ephesians, as we finish out our series in Reconstructing Faith today, um, Paul is finishing this letter while he's in prison, in a jail cell, in a Roman prison. And I'm sure he's looking out through, his, through the barred windows of his prison and seeing soldiers there in armor, training, preparing for battle. And the Holy Spirit uses this experience he's having to inspire him to conclude his letter in this way, to call believers to recognize the battle that all of us are in. And if the Christian life is a battle, as we're going to see today, there's three things that we must do as a result. And the first one is that we need to know your real enemy. If the Christian life is a battle, you need to know your real enemy. And Paul tells us in this passage that your real enemy is the devil. And often I think where we go wrong in, in, as Christians and believers with this battle imagery that we can latch onto so easily is because we make the wrong people, the wrong persons, our enemy. So in verse 11, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our enemy as believers in this battle that we're engaged in in our daily life is not other people. It's not even ourselves. Our enemy is the devil, who is the personal manifestation of evil in, 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 a, in a spiritual way in this world. In the Bible, it takes very seriously this reality of there being a personal evil uh, na- nature in this world. Right? The de- Paul calls him the devil here, but throughout scripture, he has many other names. He is called the Satan, the father of lies, the ancient serpent, the deceiver, the tempter, the evil one. And actually, scripture doesn't say as much about the devil as we might hope. We have a lot, I have a lot more curiosity. I'm sure many of us have a lot more curiosity, and that's why right, Christian history is full of these speculations about who the devil is. But scripture actually doesn't give us that as much information about him as we may want. But what it does give us, we have to really be sure to pay attention and focus on that and make us the focus of how we fight this battle with him. Because you and I, the, the truth is that you and I have an enemy who is at every turn seeking our destruction. Right? If, you, if you don't at some level right, experience struggling against an enemy who is out to get you at, at every turn and in some ways you're struggling against him in your daily life, I just gotta ask. Either two things are happening. Either that's because if you don't, ex- if you don't experience any struggle, that's because either you're perfect, which in which case I'd love to meet you after service and learn your secrets. <laughs> Or that's because maybe you're unaware of how the devil is having victory over you and how you're surrendering to him and his schemes. Because the devil is very real. And how do you expect, right, as as Stranger Things has told us, how do you expect to fight the devil if you don't even believe he's real? How can you win against someone of whom you're completely unaware of of who he is and what he's doing to try to deceive you? One One of Satan's greatest lies that we've caught on to in our modern world is thinking that he doesn't exist. And we, we, we as, as modern people, we can easily scoff 
at this existence of the devil and think that's so quaint that people way back in history used to believe in this red guy with, with horns and a ponytail. It's so quaint that people used to believe that way back when. But, once, if, but even if we look around our world at the, at the evil and the, and the suffering that people experience, is, is, is our explanations of, of past trauma, of lack of education or economic opportunity, is that enough to describe and to, and to give a reason for the, for the pure evil that we experience in this world? Is that enough? So this picture that's, uh, that's up here in a second, yep, Romeo Dallaire is this gentleman. If you, didn't know, if you don't know who he is, don't worry. The only reason I know who this man is because I grew up in Rwanda and I was actually an extra in a movie about him as a kid. Uh, fun fact. But not so fun uh, about a story about his life. Uh, Romeo Dallaire was the UN general in Rwanda in 1994. And he was tasked with keeping the peace right before the genocide broke out in 94, where over a mil- or, or nearly a million people, a, mil- a million human beings, nearly lost their lives in just 100 days in systematic ethnic cleansing that went on in that country. And Romeo Dallaire was tasked with this impossible task to keep peace, but he was given no resources or even authority to implement that. And so he had to just sit there and watch this country that he had served in go, go into ruins and into chaos. And he says, describing his experience, that one day he, he met a militia leader um, who, was, who was leading these killings. And he met him and trying to kind of broker peace to end this. And he described that experience like this. He said, I know there is a God because in Rwanda, I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him, I have smelled him, and I have touched him. I know the devil exists. The only way that, De- that Romeo Dallaire was able to make sense of the pain and suffering that he saw a million people dying in just 100 days was there is some dark, evil, spiritual, personal force at work in this world deceiving people and leading them to do this. He's not saying that the militia leader he met, that was a personal embodiment of the devil, but he's saying that there is something demonic and evil at work behind these evil forces. That's the only way that he was able to have seen the utter brokenness of humanity just to say that, that something like that could possibly happen in our world. And even just frankly, look at our own lives. Have you ever wondered why life is so hard? Why it's so hard to do the right thing that you know you want to do it, but somehow you're unable to and you're so easily deceived? Why does this life often feel like a struggle? Could it be that there is a real personal spiritual force of evil at work in this world who is seeking to destroy you and me? And if that's the case, we really need to know as believers what our enemy's strategy is. And many Christians, we go wrong when we think of the devil, like I said earlier, as just this red guy with pointy, uh, with, with pointy ears and, or a pointy tail and horns, or maybe someone who's an equal and opposite to God, that who's, who's just as powerful as God, but just as evil, or someone who has so much power that he can control us against our will. None of those things are in Scripture. Scripture tells us very clearly who our enemy is and what he uses against us. That, he, that our enemy, the devil, is a liar, and lies are his primary strategy. You know, Paul doesn't mention that explicitly here in this passage, but he's writing to people who know the entire Old Testament well and read some of his other letters, I'm sure, as well, where he describes the devil's primary strategy is to deceive us. And that's all he can do. That's his main weapon. Right? All he can do is tempt with lies, which is a powerful strategy, as you can see in our world, that, uh, that lies are effective and they work really well. 
But that's, only, that's the only power that he has in this world is to deceive human beings, to hand over their power and authority that God has given them by creating the humans in his image, by handing that over to the devil. Now, the, the best book I've read recently on this topic is by John Mark Comer. It's called Live No Lies, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies That Sabotage Your Peace. I highly recommend, if, if this topic, if this sermon, what's your appetite for this topic, I encourage you to read this book. He goes in much more detail than I can today. But, he, but John Mark Comer goes through the whole scriptural narrative and points out that, that the devil has a threefold strategy to, to deceive us and to, and to cause our destruction. It starts with him saying lies, and he speaks these lies that our flesh, our broken human nature, wants to believe. And those lies are normalized in a sinful society in the world. The devil, the flesh, and the world. These three things are our enemies as believers, and it starts with the devil and his lies. And we see this in many ways. I mean, just looking back to the example last week when Gabe talked about racial superiority and white supremacy, and this whole theory of, of racial superiority that undergirded the institution of slavery in our country. That started with the devil saying a lie that some people, based upon the color of their skin, that white people are superior to all other races. And that's a lie that broken human beings, because in, in our sinful flesh, can be tempted and, and want to believe is true, that something I can't control, my skin color, makes me better than someone else. And then that lie gets normalized in, in a sinful society in the world where you have systems and structures and rules in government, economics, and even in the church that reinforce that lie for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that's just one example of how the devil has worked in our world. And, and we see those ex- more and more examples every day that he tells lies that when we believe them and act as though they're true, they cause destruction for ourselves and for other people. John Mark Comer says in his book that we sin, we as human beings sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. And we act on that. We do something, we believe something's gonna make us happy when it actually won't, but we act on that as though it's true and that's what causes us to sin. And we see this throughout scripture. In, in, the, in the first few pages in Genesis 3, the devil lies to Adam and Eve and, and gets them to take the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and bring sin into the world. And even before he speaks, the devil is already lying. He shows up and disguises his form and shows up as a serpent to Adam and Eve. And then he lies three times and each of those lies convince them to take the fruit. He first tells them, right, did God actually say that you can't eat from any of the trees in this garden? So he first distorts God's law to make it more severe and more harsh than it actually is. Then after that, he tells them, you, won't, you will not surely die, right? He questions the consequences of, of sin, which is such a pervasive lie that we still face today, right? The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would always say that in America and, and actually across most of human history, most people live by an 11th commandment that supersedes the other 10. Our, the commandment that we live by is thou shalt not get caught. That you can do whatever you want as long as you don't get caught as long as you don't face consequences for it, then it's okay. If you don't get caught, it doesn't matter what you do wrong. And that's one of the first lies of the devil. You will not surely die. That thing that you are doing, you may think that there's consequences for it, but no, you are different. You can get away with it and you won't face consequences for it. Then after exaggerating God's command and questioning the reality of of consequences and punishment for disobedience, he finally tells them his final lie. He says, 
For God knows that when you eat that tree, in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, knowing good and evil, and you will be like God. Which is another lie, because they are already like God. They were made, just the last page, they were made in God's image to be like him. And so he's questioning their identity, that you're not really like God. God's holding out on something from you. If you take this, tr- this fruit, then you'll be like him, then you'll be truly happy. The devil has the same strategy when he meets Jesus and tempts him in the wilderness in Matthew 4. Each time he tempts him, he starts with a question, if you are the son of God, then do this or that. Make this bread, make the stone to bread, j- jump off this, this building or bow down and worship me. He's, he's getting Jesus to doubt his identity. But just earlier, Jesus was told by God when he was baptized, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But the devil goes at him trying to get him to doubt that that is actually true. He even quotes scripture to Jesus to get Jesus to believe things that aren't true because the best lies, the most convincing and believable lies are ones that are mostly true or have elements of truth in them. He even offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world to be his, which is really ironic because they rightfully belong to Jesus, although the devil has seized them as a usurper and Jesus knows that he will get them back eventually if he goes through the cross, but the devil tempts him with something that he could be his. And these lies the devil gives us and and, and speaks to us are deeper than theoretical ideas. The devil, when the devil can convince you that through your experience that you're unlovable, that he says that lie to you, that no one could love you if they really knew who you were, we can internalize that lie so much so that it changes even our neurobiology. We start acting out of that truth and living out that we're unlovable people. And that causes pain for ourselves and for other people as we push them away and live out that lie. Imagine what the devil can do when he captures an entire culture or society with a lie. A lie, perhaps, that we are just here by accident, we're, that human beings are a cosmic accident, that there's no purpose in life, that all we're trying to do is, is maximize our happiness in the short life that we have. What can he do to a society that believes that? Or even what can the devil do to a church that believes his lie? And we're, we're not exempt from believing these things. Lies like politics and power can save us. Lies like the Bible isn't really trustworthy in our modern age, that we need something extra besides the Bible to, to wrestle with the ethical questions of today. Or lies like those people over there, those people are my real enemy and they're the ones who I really need to fight and stand up against and compromise my Christian ethics in my, my fight against them. What Imagine what evil the devil can do and has done in many places when those lies have taken root even in the church. Now before you start thinking about other people in this room, I'm sure it's easy whenever a sermon is being talked, and I can do this as well, when someone's talking up here, it can be easy for your mind to go, I'm really glad so-and-so's in the room today because they really need to hear this because they're really deceived by what the devil's doing, and, and I'm glad they're here, or so-and-so's not here, and I'm going to send this to them later so they can hear about this. But listen, the devil has a specific strategy for each and every one of us. And before your mind starts to go to thinking about the lies someone else is believing, ask yourself, where are the lies that I myself and believe and act out of, and the ones that even I am subconsciously unaware of, and I'm acting as though they're true, even though they're not because the devil has a specific strategy for you. He is, a, he is our real enemy that we should be focused on. And his primary way of, of getting us to turn against God is through lies, through deceitful ideas. 
And since that's the case, since we have this battle and this enemy and we know his strategy, since the Christian life is a battle, we need to train for that real battle. Now, as we go through these, these, these verses, verses 13 through 17 in your Bibles and, and Ephesians 6, you're going to see that Paul lists out the armor of God. And it can be easy if we, if we read through that to get kind of lost in the details, but, but don't lose sight of the big picture. What he's really saying is this armor of God, it, it's, it's a representation for what we do to fight the devil. Right? We defend ourselves using these things, using truth, using the righteousness Christ has given us. Um, you t- peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer. These are things that we use. These are our weapons and tools to fight the devil. But these things are more than just the right thing to do. It's actually more than that. These are the weapons God has given us and the practices God has given us to prepare ourselves to fight for battle, They're be- to be used in defensive warfare against him, against his lies. And so we train for the real battle before we're actually engaged in the battle, right? Soldiers put on their armor before they go out to fight. You can't do that on the battlefield. If it's, you're already on the battlefield, that's when you're putting on your armor, you've already lost. It's way too late for that. That's why Paul says in verse 13, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil, right? You do the armor first, and then you're able to stand, having done all beforehand to stand firm, And throughout Christian history, for the past 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been practicing using spiritual disciplines to do this, to train off the spot, to be ready to resist the temptations and the lies of the devil on the spot. And that happens not only in, in the spiritual world, but in every area of our life. We have to train off the spot to be ready on the spot to do what we need to do. So just imagine with me, um, let's say tonight, I'm going to try to knock on wood here to make sure this doesn't happen. But let's say Patrick Mahomes gets injured this afternoon, all right? Like, big disaster. And somehow, Andy Reid calls me up to fly out to California, start under center for the Chiefs against the Chargers tonight. Uh, I would love if that happened. Like, I, have a, I, I would really want to do well and have all this desire to be a great quarterback in the NFL. But no matter how much I or anyone else in this room, for that matter, wants to play like Patrick Mahomes, we just can't. Besides, I mean, in addition to his natural gifting, he has spent years and years and years of his entire life spending many hours daily practicing, running drills to practice his throwing arm, to memorize defensive formations, to memorize his wide receiver routes, so that in the heat of a moment in a big game, he just knows what to do. He doesn't even have to think about it. He's trained that well. And no matter how much any of us want to be like him, since we haven't put in the practice, our desire and our, all our trying in the moment won't make, won't make us be able to perform like he does. And in a similar way, right, none of us on our own power can live like Jesus in moral perfection. No matter how much we want to do the right thing, it takes taking on Jesus' easy yoke, taking on the spiritual disciplines that Jesus has given us and, and the church has given us throughout history and practicing those to, through his grace and by his power, use those doing those things that we are able to do to become able to do what we can't do, to withstand the devil and his temptations and his lies. Those disciplines like reading the Bible, like praying, fasting, serving others, gathering together like this and worshiping God with our voices, all those things mature us over time and prepare us for the spiritual battles that we engage in on a daily basis. Now this morning, um, like most mornings, I woke up at 6 a.m., 
I sat on my couch, my dog Milo on my lap, I drank a cup of coffee, and I read my Bible and I prayed. Right? It's a pretty simple way. I'm sure many of you start your mornings or, or, or aspire to start your mornings like this. But what was really happening in that daily ritual that I, that I do every day? Was I just you know, getting a moment of peace and quiet before a crazy day of work? Was I just getting some good information that's going to help me professionally as a pastor do my job better? Was I just following a routine out of habit? Or was I preparing for battle? Right? By reading scripture, by, by learning uh, what God has to say, reforming my thinking to be in line with, with God's word, learning to use the sword of the spirit, the word of God to fight against the devil's lies, by shifting my focus to God while I pray to him, to, to shift my thinking, to be in line with him, who he is and who he, say, he says I am. Right? Even by sitting in silence for a few minutes to teach and train my body that I can be still. I don't need to do anything to earn God's approval or God's favor. And that physical practice teaches my body that. Or even you know, practices beyond the daily ones, taking one day off each week to not work. Right? To teach myself to fight against the lie that my identity is based on my job and my job performance. Or by fasting from a meal weekly and training my body to say no to whatever impulses or desires I may have in a moment. Right? These spiritual disciplines, they're preparation for battle. And if you're like me and you start each day like this, or, or some days I even aspire right, to, to have these disciplines and to have these practices, if, if, why do we do that? Why do we desire to put these disciplines into practice, right? Is it just because it's the right Christian thing to do? If that's your only motivation for spiritual disciplines, you're going to fall short, and the, and the devil is going to use that shame to drive you further away from God and what he wants you to do. But no, spiritual disciplines are really what we do to train for battle, to prepare ourselves, take up the armor of God, to be able to fight against the devil and his schemes and his lies, but it's not enough for us to do these spiritual disciplines alone, that we actually, we have to train for battle together. See, each, each verb in this whole section is a second person plural, and that doesn't come across in English. But really, uh, what, what Paul's saying in each time, he's saying, y'all be strong, y'all put on the armor, y'all stand firm. And that's, that's the best translation of the Greek in this, in this instance. Because he's saying, you all need to do these things together. Because one, one of the devil's most pervasive lies in a spiritual community is telling us that we can train all by ourselves. We don't need other people. We can practice these things on our own. We don't need to let anyone else in and see what I'm struggling with. We can do it on our own. But that's crazy, right? Because no army does that. Armies train together. Armies fight together. And just simply being together, gathering together like this, gathering in your small group, gathering with just another close friend regularly, those are ways that we practice relying on one another and, and training and preparing for battle. See, Paul tells uh, the, the Ephesians here, he tells them to take up the shield of faith. Now, I, I'm sure he's inspired by how in his day, shields have their strength when they're being used together. At the Roman army, they used this technique called testudo or, or the tortoise formation that they would use. They'd hold their shields together like this. And that's where they had their strength. And they were able to conquer the entire known world using this military tactic and this strategy. That they held their shields close together and then they were able to withstand the enemy's ar archers and arrows that would fly at them like this. And they would be they protected by their shields being held together. 
And so in a similar way, Paul's telling us in the Ephesians, take your faith, it's good on its own, but you need to use it together and, 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 and bind yourself with one another and work together. That's how you withstand the flaming darts and arrows of the enemy. That's why Paul tells them in verse 18 to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance. And here's what he says, make supplication for all the saints and also for me. This discipline of prayer, it's not just praying for your own personal needs, but it's praying for other believers, right? He says, pray for me that, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And if our prayer life is, 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 is focused not just on ourselves, but on other people, and we're praying for other people's needs, and we're regularly bringing those to God, that discipline shifts our mind and shifts our focus, not just care for ourselves, but care for others, and to be centered on them and what they need. Because we need to train. This is, we're in a real battle against a real enemy who's seeking to deceive us with lies. And so we need to train and prepare for that real battle with the spiritual disciplines that we do off the spot to be ready to fight him on the spot. And also doing that together because we, ha- we are much stronger when we, when, we, when we do that with others. And since that is true, finally, the third thing that we do since the Christian life is a battle is we need to stand in the real victory. You see, our battle as believers It is against an already defeated enemy. See, the devil, he's been dealt a mortal blow from Jesus, right? His power was derived from human sin and rebellion, from getting Adam and Eve to be deceived, and his power throughout history was derived from human beings' sin. But when Jesus died on the cross for human sin in our place, the devil lost all control he had over us. And his only weapon, death, was taken away when Jesus rose from the dead three days later after dying. And so the devil has been conquered by Jesus. And so though he is still dangerous, right? He still has danger and he still poises a threat to us. Ultimately, he's defeated. He's been dealt a mortal blow, but he's like an injured lion, right? Who can still be dangerous, but ultimately his days are numbered. And so our posture in this fight is standing in that victory that Jesus already achieved for us. And that's what this whole letter to the Ephesians has been like, has has been talking about that. This this victory that Jesus has experienced and had, and that is ours through our union with him. All the way back in chapter one, Paul says this in verse 19. He's telling them that so that they may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, these spiritual forces that are our enemies, Jesus has been seated far above them, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him Jesus as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul reminds us that Jesus' victory, it's so pure, it's so permanent, it's so eternal that his name is above every other name. And his victory, get this, is not just for this age, our present age, but also for the age to come. Can we say that about any other victory anyone else has achieved or or, or conquered that that has lasted that long? And Paul has been beating this drum the entire letter 
to this conclusion of Jesus' victory and now this battle that we're supposed to stand in and our posture in it. That Jesus accomplished his victory through his death and resurrection and he's taken us who are dead sinners, who are dead in our sin and made us alive in Christ, made us alive in him and raised us up with him above these spiritual forces and we're seated with Christ in the heavens. And this victory that Jesus achieved, it brought Jew and Gentile back together into one new family, the church. This victory was a hidden mystery for generations that, that was now revealed in Jesus. And it surpasses all our understanding. And so Paul pauses in the middle of his letter to pray for us, to, to understand and know this victory even more. And Jesus, as, as he's had this victory, we, we saw in chapter four, that he, as a conqueror, he gave gifts to people, to the church, rather than other conquerors who take gifts from themselves. Jesus gives gifts back to the church in, her, in terms of people and positions to equip the church and to serve her. And this victory Jesus has accomplished for us, it changes our identity as well. That we live into our new identity of Christ-likeness and we take on Jesus' cross because, G- because the cross and the resurrection is how Jesus accomplished his victory. And so that's our strategy as well to fight the battles that he's given us. That's why we, we live selflessly through our words, through our actions, through our work, through forgiving others and doing anger well. We saw how this victory changes even the smallest units of society, the family, that it changes the wife, husband, the the child, parent, the slave, master relationship in the first century. It radically transforms those and reorients them around Jesus and his cross when he asks each person, humbly submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and his victory. And now Paul concludes this entire letter about Jesus' victory, telling us to stand in Jesus' victory and prepare for the battle that we have. And that victory is why our posture in this battle is to stand, which, which, which is different. You would think if we're in a battle, right, we need to attack, we need to charge, we need to go in there and fight and be on the offensive. And then and there's other scriptures that kind of can have that, that focus. But here, since Paul's focus is on the victory of Jesus and God, that's why he says stand. Because the, the only, that army that, that stands is an army that has already won all it needs to. Uh, Louis, Louis Schaefer in his Ephesians commentary, he says this, in this connection, it is interesting to observe that as pilgrims we walk, as witnesses we go, as contenders we run, and as fighters we stand. That we don't fight by charging into others, we fight by standing on the victory Christ has already won for us. And, and this can be one of the most powerful truths that we can use to fight one of the most powerful enemy, powerful lies of the enemy. That's the lie of fear. Because we have nothing to lose. So Jesus already accomplished the victory for us. And so we have nothing to lose. We have nothing to fear. And for those of you who've been with us on this journey, um, we've been going through deconstruction and reconstruction, whatever doubts you may have, it can be easy to think that I'm afraid that Jesus doesn't have the right answers or all the answers. So I'm afraid to even ask some hard questions. But just know that Jesus has the answers. Ask the hard questions. Don't be afraid to lean in and really try and figure this out and wrestle with it fully with us and with others and with God's word. Because Jesus has already achieved the victory and he already has the answers that he wants to share with you. And he won't walk away from you no matter how much you're you're wrestling or struggling or trying to figure out what you think or believe. And if you're struggling, being encouraged by this, you know, Paul, he concludes this letter with a, with a throwaway line at the end. He says, you know, oh yeah, and, and pray for me. I'm still in chains. 
right? Jesus is in victory in heaven and I'm still here in my prison. Pray for me. And, and for us, it looks like, wow, Paul's really contrasting his own situ- situation and chains and Jesus' victory in heaven. But really those two things aren't incompatible for Paul because Jesus achieved his victory through apparent weakness, that Jesus won through dying on the cross. In fact, Paul boasts in his weakness because Jesus always wins through apparent weakness. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says that he, therefore I will boast all the more gladly because of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insult, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you're, so if you're struggling in this battle today, know that Christ has already won the battle, that your weakness is not a hindrance to Christ's victory. It's, it's a tool that he can use by his grace to achieve that. So stand firm in the victory that Christ has already achieved, his real victory. Train for that real battle with the confidence knowing that, we have already, that you've already won in him. Know that you're real enemy, the devil, and don't be distracted by other pretend enemies. And your real enemy is one that has already been defeated and we will overcome him together. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you and praise you for the work you've done uh, to conquer death and sin and evil for us. And praise you that we're already seated with you there in the heavenly places. And God, I ask that you reveal to each of us and show us what, what areas that we are not conscious of where we are falling into believing the lies the devil tells us about what will make us happy and empower us to rely on your truth, to do the work, to train uh, with you and with others to withstand him in the evil day. Lord, we love you. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this time we will, we do what we do each week where we...